Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 29, Episode 4. Coming up on the show, we've got Missing 4-on-1 and the German Triangles, classified reports of the Sasquatch sources, and the boggle threshold of the deep weird. I'm Benjamin Grundy, joining me is Aaron Wright. Okay, I'll bite. What's the boggle threshold? So the boggle threshold is a term that came about during parapsychological research. Mm -hmm. And it, it occurs where you've got kind of really fringe research topics like so, uh, stuff of high strangeness no not even that so uh, investigating spiritual experiences maybe uh psychic research and even though that's on the fringe when some of these researchers in their studies come across stories and encounters and reports that are beyond their boggle threshold they leave them out of their studies. So these people oh. these people are already doing the fringe research, but they come across something that's the fringe of the fringe. And even they're like, oh, I, I just cannot include this report in my like out-of-body experience, like scientific paper. I can't include it. It's just too crazy. So we're going to be looking today at the work of Jack Hunter, who... Uh, you know, we're a great fan of his work. He's Absolutely. an anthropologist. He's been on the show twice, I believe. Uh, his last appearance was back in 2018. And he's got a new book out called Deep Weird, The Varieties of High Strangeness Experience. And uh, it's, a, it's a collection of essays that he's curated. And it's just some brilliant contributions. Joshua Cutchin uh, writes one. Anthony Peake is in there as well. We're going to be looking at uh, synchronicities. We're going to be looking at some weird shifters. There's this whole thing with Gen Z where they believe they can shift into alternate realities. Oh, that's the mirror at... stuff, isn't it? Yeah, well, They look into a mirror and no, they that... jump into another reality? Well, it's kind of. They actually believe that they can enter a, a Harry Potter world and uh, marry one of the characters and live an alternate life. Oh, no, that's <laughs> called a hallucination. No, it's it, it very, very similar to out-of-body experiences and lucid dreaming. It crosses over in a big way. All right. And uh, there's also that a fantastic story from David Luke that we covered, I think, almost five years to the day we spoke about David Luke's DMT encounter with that multi-eyed entity with Oh, tentacles. the threshold of the Guardian. I really oh, want the Guardian of the threshold, sorry. Yeah, I really want to retell that story. So if we've got time, I'll go into that as well. Uh, but that's what I've got coming up in Plus, this in incredible look at these stories that are rejected by the already fringe researchers. Yes. Because they're just too strange. Yeah, I would I imagine that would probably happen to a lot of people because already you're kind of ostracized by the scientific com community, certainly. And if you go even into you know this space, the paranormal space, I think there are limits as to what some people can tolerate. So when you find these extreme outlying cases, you do tend to put them on the back burner and not talk about them, except for in very closed circles. Everyone's got a boggle threshold. Well, I think I, I want to talk about that on today show. So it will dovetail actually quite nicely. And the reason why I say that is because uh, speaking about people that we've had on the show, uh, we have had David Politis on the show in the past. Of course, he is the author of those fantastic books, Missing 411. Uh, there's a wide variety of them covering all around the globe at the moment. And it addresses those phenomena where, you know, you find that people disappear in very strange circumstances. There's a set of kind of criteria as to how a case will fall into, you know, these categories of Missing 411. But it's a few things like, for example, you know, someone will just suddenly disappear. They'll be walking along a path and they'll be with a, a family member and they'll go around a curve ahead. And then when the family member comes around the curve, there's no one. Yeah. And the place will be searched over and over and over by search teams from air, you know, from the water, on the ground. 
and no body will be found. Then all of a sudden, after this particular location has been walked past and searched seven or eight times, for example, a body will miraculously reappear as if it's appeared out of nowhere. Well, David Pilatus has uh, put out a new documentary, and I was recently actually chatting with his, uh, I suppose you call him his publicist, and... um, he was saying, you know, we should get David on the show. And I went to go and watch his new documentary, Missing 411, The UFO Connection. It just came out late last it year. It came right? out at the very end of last year. This documentary is superb. It's so good that I do want to talk to David, but I just want to talk about this documentary. This is how in- incredible this is. And I think what's happened to David, I, I was reading this today and I was thinking, David has become the macabre John Keel. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, John Keel, we know, was well known for the Mothman prophecies and researching high strangeness. He interacted with men in black. Uh, He had a a wide variety of experiences. But with John Keel, one of the things that he looked at in his research was coincidences. He found that there were strange coincidences. There seemed to be this pattern that was occurring. It seemed that, you know, certain phenomena would occur on a Wednesday, for example, or, you know, he noticed that certain areas had more activity associated with them. Funnily enough, I think John Keel was also related reluctant in coming forward or in embracing some of these ideas as you look through his research. And you can see how he has this progression of kind of embracing it. But then later on, towards the very end of it, him looking upon the entire phenomenon with a kind of disdain. I'm not saying that's what's happening with David, but I think one of the criticisms from inside the paranormal community that I've seen with David Politis, and this is not his fault by any means, is that David has got a collection of reports of these weird disappearances specifically across the northern, you know, North America. Yeah. And people have gone, oh, he never has any type of, you know, hypothesis as to what's going on. I'm like, well, he hasn't up until recently because who knows? We don't know. All you can do is look at each of the cases and look like John Keel at the similarities between them, look for patterns. You know, you've got this pattern recognition going on uh, and then maybe try and draw some conclusions as to what's happened. But he's never been forthcoming really on, you know, what this might be. For example, I think the BFRO, you know, you've got the collection of reports of Bigfoot reports and those were overlaid with these clusters that, you know, Pilatus had found and people had said, oh, it must be Sasquatch taking people. I'm like, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. Uh, it's always Why be- is that ridiculous? Because it's just not. It doesn't correlate that well. It's close enough, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the same kind of correlation. And when you look at these cases... There's no mention of these. You would find that there would be, a, you know, like a creature being seen, even people reporting a bear or something. Maybe there's been one or two cases, but to just have this broad, you know, kind of uh, brush that you paint all of these cases as being Sasquatch is just ridiculous. Like sure. it's, it's okay. a ridiculous way to approach it. Uh, but same as, you know, approaching it from being, well, it's UFOs taking everyone. However, in this latest documentary... Isn't that what it's all about? <laughs> this latest documentary gives us some considerable insight to it possibly being a UFO-related phenomenon, that the UFOs are potentially taking people, but there's all these other elements which I don't even think David himself has realized when it comes to isosceles triangles. What? I know. This was me today. Are As we getting was, the maps out? We today? are going to potentially be getting the maps out. I've actually drawn a little hand map here, Ben, that I'm going to show you in a moment. Because I don't even, obviously, he's probably not aware of this research, but only recently, Ben, you know, you've done all that great work into the weird connections between, um, what was it? You've got mountains. And when you draw a connection between these mountains, you'll find that there's a sacred site or some type of site importance nearby, right? It was from the research. I can't remember the author's name now. It's in my notes somewhere. But he was tracking the peaks of mountains in Egypt in relation to the Giza Plateau and the pyramids there. 
And he noticed that uh, when you joined the two highest peaks with the peak of the Giza Pyramid, it formed an isosceles triangle. And everywhere he looked around the world, if you took the three highest peaks and connected them with a sacred site, an ancient temple, some kind of monument, a stone circle, you would always get an isosceles triangle. And in that uh, segment, I looked at our supposed pyramid in northern Queensland, just for fun, like the Gimpy Gimpy Pyramid. And I connected it with the two highest peaks closest to it. And I got a bloody isosceles (laughs) triangle. And then fans started to do the same thing. There was one sent to us recently where they traced, they, they found a little island and it's called Pyramid Island. And then they found the three peaks around it, connected them all together on Google Earth, and it's an isosceles triangle. Yes. We just had case after case after case. And it's just a really bizarre discovery that suggested that the ancients uh, understood that there was some kind of relationship between the geography, the surface of the Earth, and the stars, because a lot of these alignments would match up with... uh, the procession of the stars and and the That's right, where yeah. the stars were positioned in the in the sky at certain points in history, and it's just a really bizarre thing to wrap your head around that somehow the features of the Earth are mapped to the heavens. Yes, as above, so below. And then you've got these these weird triangles that show up, and then you're capable of finding them in in multiple different locations all around the world. Well, it seems like it doesn't just apply to you know sacred and special sites. It also appears to apply to alleged abductions as well. And we do know from, you know, the great researchers in the past of looking at this kind of stuff that whatever the intelligence is behind this phenomenon, it loves to mess with us. It loves to, you know, work in certain uh, patterns and you might find something in one area of research and then you'll find all of a sudden in a very strange way it correlates with another area of research. This seemingly is what is going on here. So let's jump straight into it. This is Missing 411, the UFO connection. And uh, I'll link to this documentary in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org so you can go and check it out. Uh, it's it's about an hour and a half long, and it's truly excellent. But it starts off. I'm just going to give you some of the teasers to describe, you know, some of the cases in here. Uh, it starts off, you know, uh, with David describing, as I mentioned before, what you know missing 411 profile points are. And these profile points is that when he's looked at all these disappearances, these odd disappearances, where with a lot of these cases with missing 411, if you're not familiar with those books. Yes, sometimes bodies come back, but there's a whole heap of locations where the person just disappears off the face of the planet, and it's completely unexplained. But it has these points in it, these profile points that David refers to. One is that 97% of cases, he says canines cannot get a scent trail. They cannot get a scent trail, and there's no tracks. The second point is that there's weather-related issues, and this inhibits the ability of the searchers to find the missing person. It's either the weather will come in just as a person disappears or as they start searching or just beforehand, but it seems like strange weather phenomena plays a role in this. Uh, The other thing is that people are found in in regions that are sometimes dead and sometimes alive uh, that have previously been searched, as I said, six to seven times. And the other factor is that they seem to appear around bodies of water boulders, swamps, and bogs. Now, those bodies of water are an important point that comes up later on with quite an intriguing hypothesis that David puts forward. And it actually, it, it did blow my mind as to what this possibility could be. Uh, because we tend to think, I've looked at this as being 
potentially an interdimensional thing, that uh, if there's an overlapping of dimensions, you know, we've heard these stories, you know, from the 1800s of people that would go woodcutting uh, or, you know, wandering out in the forest and they'd find themselves tumbling into some type of space where they had an invisible force field and they can't get out. And when people come searching for them, they're yelling and no one can hear them. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, uh, it kind of dissipates and that person is able to return. And of course, you go back into history, you've got, you know, the folktale legends of fairies and that kind of stuff. And, you know, people disappear. So this has been happening for a long time, but in modern terms, it's highly unusual. And we have the story of Ray Salmon from 2013. Now, Ray, 65 years old, recently retired, uh, he'd been going to this same location on Harrison Lake in uh, just outside of Vancouver in British Columbia uh, for 20 years. Like he'd been to this location, you know, plenty of times. He'd taken his wife, Daniela, there, you know, plenty of times. Nothing strange had ever happened. He'd never had anything weird take place. He was an experienced outdoorsman, and he just disappeared one day. He just simply disappeared. He drove to Harrison Lake in his truck, which had a a camper on the back. He took a boat. He took a life jacket. uh, He took weapons. He took dogs, and he was gone. Now, the reason, it's all kind of odd the way that it came about, but what came about is that witnesses claimed that they heard three gunshots into the sky. And then that was it. Uh, And there was a knock at the door of his wife. So his wife didn't go on the trip with him. Uh, And it was RCMP. It was this, you know, police officer from Canadian police. And they were looking for Ray. And she's like, well, Ray's out camping. And they said, oh, okay then. Um, Yeah. Now we find out later on that very quickly they learned that, that Ray was missing. But the reason why they knew this is because a bunch of kids, so obviously teenagers because they could drive, had reported to the police that they'd been in this area and someone had been shooting at their vehicle. But when they shot at their vehicle, um, they, they shot out their headlights, right? So that's a strange thing to do. So the RCMP went looking and they deployed a search team. Now, David goes and speaks with a man by the name of Adam Palmer. Adam Palmer headed up this search team and Adam Palmer apparently has uh, years of experience in wandering through the wilderness, you know, looking for missing persons. And he said something very odd happened. When they arrived at this site, there was already an ERT there. An ERT is an emergency response team. They were decked out with automatic weapons, fully automatic weapons, and they are considered to be essentially a SWAT team. Why did the RCMP deploy a SWAT team into this particular location? It doesn't seem to make any sense. It's the first time Adam said that he's ever experienced this, that they would, normally it would be if there was a gunman or something. And yes, I mean, these kids had reported that their headlights had been shot out, but none of it makes any sense. Now, apparently, according to the story, and I'm going to make this very short in comparison because the documentary does go into great detail about how he was missing and and what happened to him. In a nutshell, though, it's that when the police came to his camper trailer and they opened the camper trailer, uh, there was a couple of items missing, but essentially everything like his medication and uh, wallet and phone and all that was all in in the camper. And so his dogs, two dogs, were locked in the back of the camper. That's strange. It is strange. And then his, his wife, Daniela, said, look, that's that's not normal because that's not something that he would do. If he was going to go somewhere, he would take his dogs with him. And they ended up finding his uh, firearm up in the hills somewhere. So they found his rifle. Then they found his pistol up in a field. And none of it was making sense. And they were searching around. So the factor that started kicking in with the missing 411 event in this is that when they um, went looking, they actually found that there was, a, a, under a tree, his clothes. And his clothes were folded. There you go. That old detail. Why? 
As it, I mean, if you, this, they were saying that the guy was suffering from hypothermia, so he must have stripped his clothes off. But David Pilatus asked the searcher, Adam Palmer, and he's like, was he suffering from hypothermia? Like, what do you, what do you think of that? And Adam responds with, well, it was July. Like, it's warm. I was up here, even at 6,000 feet or 6,000, you know, elevation. It's, it was warm. I was sweating as we were doing. So why would he take off his clothes if he was suffering from hypothermia? Even if he was, though, why would he then fold them and place them down? Well, there are these reports within the missing 4-on-1 genre. I remember the one that I covered most recently on the show was a woman. No, it was actually a man talking about uh, he was on a, remember he was on a bicycling mountain biking excursion Mm -hmm. and he had been separated from his friends he was the first one down the mountain and he came across this part of the track where he just felt like he needed to stop and then when he he got off his bike and he went over to the side and there was this beautiful lake there that he hadn't seen before like this beautiful body of water and then he said he just all of a sudden just felt indescribably hot like he was in a microwave yes and he just needed to take his clothes off he felt like i've got to i've got to get my clothes off and i've got to get into that water but you wouldn't stand there and fold your clothes well i think that's what he was doing he started to fold everything up very neatly and then his his buddies on their bikes came down and said dude what are you doing what why are you taking your clothes off it's freezing and then the the feeling of being hot and that desire to jump in that that uh, body of water had disappeared and actually there was another one of a of a woman who got separated from her friends a similar thing where she just lost sight of them and then they were gone from the track she couldn't catch up with them she described the same thing that all of a sudden it just felt so incredibly hot like she was on another planet all of a sudden everything felt indescribably hot and she was worried because it was getting hotter and hotter and hotter and I can't recall if she came across a body of water as well. Like she came Again, across water. some kind of lake or some kind of watering hole that was just so enticing because she felt like she was going to overheat and die. Mm. So, yeah, she was walking around no clothes, completely topless as well until I can't recall how she got back to reality. But she eventually kind of snapped out of it and realized, oh, why have I got my clothes off? It's not even that warm. What is going on? So that's that's unusual. And it suggests that there is some type of induction of uh, hallucination or something that might be taking place here. But what's causing that? Is it simply that they've had some bad food? or is, No, it appears to be that this is a element of the phenomenon that is uh, deliberately misleading people through the wilderness. And, you know, a few other factors came up here. It was described by Adam. He said that there was one point where they... Uh, they saw where the the clothes were. Uh, they were going to go and search in there, and the the ERT, this emergency response team, went up and had a look and said, "No, you can't go in there. You can't go and re- you can't go and search in there." And he said, "That's odd because there's no place that you can't search. Like, why would they? No, it was too dangerous. You can't you can't go in there." They then told Danielle, his wife, that oh, he must have drowned. He must have been injured and he must have drowned. But that didn't make sense either because his boat was still at the campsite. He hadn't taken his boat out. And she said, even if he did take his boat out, he would have worn his jacket. And what was with those three shots? Well, she knows that with those three shots, he's told her, because he's taken her out camping before, that if anything happens and you need help, you fire three shots into the sky as SOS. That's standard, right? And that was what was heard by witnesses. And then also the suggestion that he was shooting out some car. Well, I mean, she's like, he would never do that. He would never shoot at a car because there's a potential, no matter how good of a crack shot you are, you're not going to shoot at a car because you could potentially shoot someone. And then why also would you shoot at just the headlights? Well, unless he was worried about 
who was in the car and what they were going to do. That's a possibility as well. Uh, now, Adam also points out that there was some type of grad party that had taken place not too far from, from where they were searching. And the ERT or whoever was heading up this other group told the searchers to go and pick up all the rubbish. And he's like, even David says, in the 7,000 cases that he's, he's looked into, he's never heard about this. There's something very odd that's going on here. Got them to pick up all the rubbish. The rubbish. What's that got to do with anything? Nothing. That's the th- There was a grad party nearby that had a party that left rubbish everywhere, and this team said to the searchers, go and pick up the rubbish. Yeah, is that really an important detail? Of course it is. Why would you tell a search party that they're looking for a guy who's missing to go and pick up rubbish? That's not their responsibility. That's maybe, they were their taking, maybe they were taking a break or something, and he said, oh, while well, you're taking a break. No, no, no. Pick no. up the rubbish. No, this, that's, that's not, no, all of this had to be cleared up. Like, this is why, and now, if, imagine if you are either a professional searcher or you're a volunteer, and all of a sudden, this team says, you can't go and search in there, go and pick up the rubbish. My response would be, no, that's not my job. I'm not here. Like, it's just surreal. Now, the implication here is that the RCMP knew something, but weren't willing to let that information come out. Now, what could- Cover up. Well, what Clean could it be? Clean it up, Wait. So, Yes, his clothes were found under a log. His rifle was found 400 yards to the north of his truck and his pistol was also found a few hundred yards away lying in the middle of a meadow. This was a triangular formation. This is not what David says. I was just like, because he keeps on putting up the, in the documentary. Is it isosceles? It's isosceles. <laughs> if you look at it, it's this weird isosceles triangle. And I'm like, and that, as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, no, no, no. No, I'll just leave. Okay, it gets more, right? So I want to play some audio for you. So the next thing that we start to suspect here is that maybe the RCMP, you know, know something. Well, David goes and speaks to Gail Starr, who's a retired RCMP officer. And she actually lets on that there's a special branch within the RCMP or attached to the RCMP that actually investigates UFO sightings. Now, why would they be doing that? So just listen to what she has to say. We heard that the RCMP has a policy about UFOs. Yes. Tell us about that. If you get involved with a UFO investigation, it is you hand that information over. I don't know where it goes. So somebody somewhere is collecting and tracking this information. I would say so, yes. So the RCMP is connected to this group. Why? What would this have to do with searching for a missing hunter? Like, what would this have to do with anything? Well, it's the small details that start popping up. So the wife, Daniela, said that initially they didn't even want to give her his guns back, which was just odd. They never gave back his backpack. Uh, and it was blatantly clear that the RCMP was hiding something. Now, this sparked David's memory. And he recalled that there was actually a freedom of information document from the RCMP uh, that describes people in that region many years ago, seeing a, a, a UFO there. Now, um, it's, it's funny because with these, these particular documents, right, the document actually describes the, the native people of the region talking about uh, the Sasquatch ship. What? So they describe a large, 
a large vessel. I think it was around uh, 100 feet, so like a football field, or in fact, 200 feet in diameter. Is, is that made of wood it. and it's just pedals? <laughs> he just pedals it. It's got, yeah, like, it's really got like propellers at the top. Crappy wings that he has to just <laughs> flap with his arms. No, I mean, I know we're laughing about it, um, but this is being, like, it's, it's actually taken quite seriously. Like they were reporting in the 1960s, in March of 1960, the tribe refers to a spaceship that they saw that they called the Sasquatch Ship. And there were others of them that were in this exact location where this guy had gone missing. Why would it be called the Sasquatch ship? I don't know. What, Does it have his logo on it? What, like, I, what, what is it? Well, we do know about the Angry Bears. I think it was the uh, the Native American, well, the uh, um, the Americans, as in the Native Americans down further south, not in Canada, but further down south. There are uh, legends of the Native Americans describing um, like the, the Angry Bears. And they were basically Bigfoots that were flying around in orbs. So the fact that the RCMP has this restricted document describing this could be nothing or it could be something. Because does he show the document? Yeah, he does show uh, screenshots of this document that, that pops up. And that's where I got the Sasquatch ship because he doesn't say it. He doesn't say it in the documentary. <laughs> but it actually says but it. But it actually the... says it. <laughs> it didn't. It went beyond his boggle threshold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's why I was saying I feel like David Politis has kind of, because he's been researching this for so long, he's now stepped into the next realm. Like he's actually, as and we see this with so many researchers that he's now he's always kind of stood on the outside and not offered you know any significant hypothesis apart from the fact that like, his research is superb and saying well look there's something strange going on here to now almost implying that there's either something interdimensional or something extraterrestrial. He had avoided the red pill and now he's just gone straight to the schizo. Pill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say that, but you may you may infer it that way later on when we get to his hypothesis. But let me come back. Um, so. So let me also play some audio for you because this is the next factor, right? So he's describing this document uh, and then the fact that there's been UFO sightings in this area all these years ago. David, of course, starts speaking to Daniela Salmon and the wife of Ray and saying, look, is there anything unusual? Like, has, has there been anything odd going on? And she's like, yeah, there actually is. In March of 1960, the RCMP had a document that would have been classified as restricted that had to do with the Athabascan Indians seeing a UFO in the general area of where Ray Salmon disappeared. And that document, in essence, says that they saw something that we would consider today to be your standard cylindrical UFO. We were camping once at a place called Fire Lake. And we're just sitting around the campfire in the evening and, and there's a, a large lake and on the other side there's a mountain and there wasn't any logging going on at that mountain. And we're sitting there and we could see a light across the lake. I was saying, oh, there, there must be logging going on there. It looks like there's a car. And Ray said, that's not a car. And he goes, I know for a fact he, there isn't any logging going on there. He knows all the roads, all the back hills. He's hiked everywhere. But as we're looking at this light, it's traveling very quickly and doing 90 degree turns, very unusual. So a car in the mountains wouldn't have been traveling that way. And it wasn't just a flash. We were sitting there watching this. And I, I remember sitting there for a good 10 minutes watching this and almost enjoying this. I thought this is fascinating. Cool. So it sets the scene that he's previously had an encounter with a UFO. He's camping in a location that's known to have associations with UFOs and the guy just suddenly disappears. Now, it could just be a simple, we know that correlation isn't causation. But when you look at the greater 
you know, data and all the reports, you start to see that there's a pattern forming here. And it seems like at least with a couple of cases that are described in this particular documentary, these people are already targeted beforehand by a UFO until they're alone. This is what many of these people that disappear in this particular documentary, they disappear when they are alone. Now, of course, that could just be that they've just stumbled off in the wilderness and because they're alone, there's no one to you know report what happened to them. But again, these are locations that are searched over and over and over and over and over and nobody's ever found anything about it. So let's skip forward to John Miles. John Miles is a friend of Ray. Uh, he's a long-term resident of Harrison Lake in British Columbia. And he says he too, uh, not directly, but he's had a friend who's had experiences right on the very beach of Lake Harrison. I've been here a long time. When I had the cottage over there, I had some friends and he came up with his girlfriend and they camped on the beach. I guess it was about 2.30 in the morning. They were in the tent on the beach in the middle of the night, asleep. My friend said, I was sleeping like that and all of a sudden I knew there was a light. It woke me up. And the inside of the tent was like daylight. He he unzipped the door and looks outside. And it was like the 12 o'clock high noon on the clearest day of the year. And he can see the, the beach and the water and all that for, but he couldn't see past a certain area, so it was lit up. And that clicked, hey, that, I never, I, you know, hey, I believe in what they told me because somebody else told me the same thing. So John is essentially getting, you know, some type of validation for the story of his friend in the disappearance of Ray and the fact that now you have multiple sightings of unexplained aerial phenomena, UAPs, I despise that term, but occurring in this particular location. Why? Well, I mean, is it just that it's a coincidence or is it that Paul Ray was actually targeted for some reason? And that starts to become apparent later in the documentary that there is some type of potential targeting going on with certain witnesses. That it's not just simply a person who's stumbling about in the forest that is being taken. There seems to be a set of parameters that whoever is behind this phenomenon, if indeed that's what's occurring, targets very specific people. Is there any discussion around why he would be targeted? Is there anything unique about the guy? That becomes apparent later on as we go through the documentary. So uh, what is described is we we skip forward, and this is where the the documentary, you can see how it's kind of potentially going in two directions and where David might have gone down the path of uh, possibly the link with cattle mutilations. It's got a kind of Linda Moulton Howe feel to it. Um, But he goes over and he's still, because he says, look, you know, and this is throughout the documentary, you know, he's coming from a traditional law enforcement background. Uh, he's willing to, you know, entertain a whole heap of unusual things, but there's just some things that he can't, you know, this is the boggle threshold. There's just some things that he can't get through. So he wants to seek out other people that are experts or professionals in this field to see what, you know, they have to say about it. So he goes to Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center, and it, it sets up the scene of a, a, a strange occurrence that happened in 1999 when a group of forestry workers uh, up in Washington state witnessed the abduction of an elk. They had seen an object approach from the east and they stood there and watched it for a few seconds. He called the, the object to the attention of the workers and they all looked up and saw it as well. And it flew towards a herd of elk that these guys had been watching all morning long as they worked on a hillside. All the elk bolted to the northeast to heavy cover, except for one hapless elk. And the object 
lifted the elk off the ground and it started moving slowly in the direction in which that herd of elk had gone. And it came to a large tree, an evergreen tree, and bumped into it, interestingly, and backed away from the tree and then suddenly shot to the north. So this is odd, right? This is witnessed, uh, as we pointed out there, by a group of forestry workers. And David digs into this a little bit deeper, trying to understand, you know, what the circumstances were. Uh, It was a group of Hispanic workers who didn't speak English. And so they were obviously very excited and terrified by what they had seen. So they have to bring in uh, another investigator who speaks Spanish and is able to, you know, speak with them. And the investigator is quite insistent that these men are all, um, they're very credible. They're describing what they have seen. Uh, They were terrified by what they had seen. And in fact, they were reluctant to go back out and work for this forest anymore, like go into that field because of just how potentially dangerous it was, because they saw what appeared to be something that was quite small. Like this was a small craft that came over. And they said when it came over, it kind of latched on to this particular elk and the elk was like a statue. Like, And this is important. This is a factor that comes up later on. It was like, it was paralyzed and then lifted up into the sky, and you heard there that it smacked into a tree and then took off into the distance. When well, you say the craft was small, what are we talking, the size of a car? Okay, so listen to this. So I've got uh, audio here from Robert Fairfax, who's the former director of Washington State MUFON, and he describes uh, in, in, quite, you know, you know, in quite detail about what this craft looked like. What they, what they did was they looked at the elk, they looked at the craft, and they said, well, okay, if the elk is this big, the craft's going to be somewhere between six and eight feet long, about five feet wide, with a little indentation in the back, about 18 inches thick. It had a red and a white stripe that weren't lights, but the white stripe was like a bright enamel paint. The red stripe was a duller color. Bizarre. So it's, yeah, it's like a small vehicle of sorts. It's like a probe. It's like maybe a mm. drone of some kind. Now, take a look in the show notes because I will include a screenshot of a, uh, a CGI representation of this craft. And it does. It kind of looks like a kidney beam with a couple of stripes on the back of it that's been flattened out. It's a, it's a very odd description of what this is. And these guys were, you know, horrified by what they had seen. They had trouble sleeping. Uh, and later so it on, said it was moving towards the rest of the herd. Does yeah. that mean it was trying to get more, more meat? Yeah, maybe. And... Like, this is what people have put forward with cattle mutilations before. They've said, well, the reason why cattle mutilations are taking place is because they're doing what human beings would do. They're harvesting them for food. And that becomes apparent in another uh, abduction case, which I'm going to describe for you in a moment. But then there's the whole other factor, right? So this is something that came up. So Robert Fairfax called David Politis after he'd done the interview with him. He said, look, I forgot to tell you that I had actually met with a representative of that, that farming company. And we've been finding dead elk that appear to be suffering from, um, I think it's called CWD, chronic wasting disease, which is connected to prions. Like it's the, the spongiform encephalitis. Wow. And apparently in this particular area, they've been finding deer, elk, and moose that are all being affected. It's like got 100% lethality of these animals that are being infected with this chronic wasting disease. And again, and that, was, that was the theory of Colm Kelleher with UFO right. abductions, That sorry, not UFO abductions, with cattle mutilations, yes. that it was, in fact, the, the US government or perhaps a combination of government and non-human forces who were taking these bovine cattle and 
checking them out for prion disease. Yes. It was basically seeing how far the prions had entered the food chain. Yes, it's a complete mess. And in fact, later on, David Politis describes this as potentially uh, the worst wildlife disaster that could happen to North America just because of how this chronic wasting disease is, is spreading. And, you know, uh, apparently it's centered in Colorado and Wyoming two locations that are known to have a huge amount of cattle mutilation reports coming through. Strange light activity, carcasses being found later on. Is that what's happening? Is there some type of uh, remote monitoring of these things? Uh, Because it's so terrifying. Like if this got into our food supply, if it got into cattle, uh, it could be absolutely devastating for, you know, our food chain. Is that what's going on here? I, I don't know. It seems like though it's out of control. And in fact, hunters in those areas have allegedly been told that they have to get their kills tested and not, don't eat them until they're tested. So it's kind of, it's a very, very precarious situation that, that's going on here. So we have to, to skip forward to a report that came from Idaho. And this relates to a, uh, a Chris Bales. This kind of gives, unfortunately, Chris survived this, but this kind of sets up what, what might be happening out here. Because on this particular event or this date, it was September the 27th in the year 2000, uh, Chris goes hunting in the middle of Idaho with his brother Mark and his friend uh, Rob and his friend's dad. And they go into the tall timbers and they had these pack mules with them. And as they're out in the wilderness and it's, it's dark, uh, for whatever reason, one of them decides to go for a um, go for a pee in the middle of the night, right? And this was, I think, this is Rob Rob Zinter that has this experience. Now he goes for a pee, no one else around for miles, like it's isolated. And as he starts walking back towards the trailer, there's this bright light that lights up above them, like it's he's making his way back. And about eighty feet up, um, Chris had just stepped out of the trailer. And Chris is yelling across to Rob to look up and they're both looking up and they can hear like the brother and the father that are there as well. They can hear all the commotion going on outside. They look out and they see in the sky a huge triangular craft that is floating there. It's got no rivets or panels. There's no seams. There's no joints. It just has this perfect surface, but there's no noise. There's no wash. There's no sound. There's no smell. It's a calm night. It's just floating there. It has these three outer lights that are kind of domed. Uh, It's got a red light right in the center. And there's these weird black kind of circles that are all around it. Now, this thing was hovering, uh, shooting this light down to the ground when all of a sudden it just kind of floated away. Like it didn't go off rapidly. It just floated away. And what's implied here is that maybe Rob, when he'd gone for a pee, He was alone. He'd moved away. And this is a location that's known to have other activity going on, that this craft was coming down to get him and it was interrupted because Chris stepped outside the trailer. It's an interesting Mm. theory. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe... And we've heard of triangles before. Like, there's been plenty of reports of these before. Um, But this also coincides, right? This particular location, this is what's odd about this. This location coincides with uh, a case that David covered in his first documentary, which involved the disappearance of Dior uh, Kutz. So Dior was three years old. He went into a campground uh, with his parents, and I think his grandfather, and he just simply disappeared. There was no trace of him. Never found the body. Never found the body. After all these years, no one has any any knowledge as to what happened. In fact, even in this documentary, uh, David goes and speaks to, you know, the sheriff and the authorities, you know, looking for an update on, on what's happened. And there's nothing. 
No one has any knowledge as to, to what happened. So look what's going on here. You've got the case that's occurring to, uh, to Chris and to Rob. Then you've got the disappearance of Dior. Then also in this area, so it's the third one, it's like the abductions come in threes, you have the disappearance of Ray Jones. And in fact, here's David describing what happened to Ray Jones 53 years ago. Now, Ray was a 39-year-old service station owner in Salmon who disappeared 53 years ago on a hunting expedition with friends. They separated, Ray disappeared, and for 53 years, he wasn't found. Now, a group of hunters that saw the, the triangular UFO, their dad actually knew Ray. And so every time they went out and hunted this area, they said that they were looking for Ray as well. He wasn't found. And then he's found this year at the bottom of a boulder field in an area that had been previously searched dozens of times. Suddenly he's found there. And when you map these three incidents, you have a very neat triangle. No. The bloody triangles again. The triangles. What is going on? What is this? So if I get to speak to, to David, I want to put this forward to him because this is very, very odd. But hang on a second. Did he mention anything about the nature of the triangle? Because, of course, if you have three points and you join them together, you're always going to get a triangle. So, it's, I mean, that's not weird. But when we were looking at uh, the book Star Mirror by Mark Vidler, that was the author I couldn't remember earlier, the, the important thing was the the relationship of the two sides. It's an isosceles triangle. That's what made it strange. Yes. No, he doesn't say that. He says it's a neat triangle. So I'm just suggesting that when you look at these cases, because there's three incidences where this takes place, that there is a triangular formation that's taking place. But you get what I'm saying. There's always going to be a triangular well, formation if you've got three points. But just wait for it, though, because these all these thing incidents seem to happen in threes. And the last case I'm going to describe for you fits in with the idea that you've got the three points and then some type of important location sitting off to the side. Okay. That's the important part that will come up in a moment. But you're jumping ahead a little bit, so we'll just hang on for a second. So I, I want to now you know, go forward where uh, David says, look, I need to get other assistance with this. And he reaches out to John D'Souza. John D'Souza is a fascinating individual. He uh, is a former uh, FBI agent. He's considered to be an expert uh, in his investigations and has you know, um, presented you know, before attorneys, before done all this kind of stuff. Uh, he has a very intriguing, from his research, uh, a very intriguing approach to what these things are. It might not be extraterrestrial. It might be interdimensional. And what was your conclusion in general about these people that claim abductions and disappear and come back? We report on the ones that we talk about. Uh, those are real. And I do believe that uh, they are connected to extra-dimensional beings, beings that come from outside of our reality. In many, many of my stories, uh, families in the woods, children are right next to them, everything's fine. They turn around one second and the kid's gone. They're not anywhere to be found. And the statement from the parents is they were right there. And then the next second they're gone. Now, if that is true, that really does answer a conundrum about how they can disappear and nobody can realize it. Right. The time period is so short that their disappearance is not possible in our purely 
physical world. So I like his approach there. He's suggesting that this is not a purely physical thing, even though we've been talking about UFOs. Uh, it does open the possibility here that there is some type of interdimensional aspect which is responsible for these disappearances, which is something that we suggested there at the start of the show. But you know, skipping through, you know, David says, well, look, I was also told something very unusual uh, from people working inside the FBI that the government doesn't want to know about this. And this is something that D'Souza put forward. He said, unless it's a very specific group within the government, overall, the government doesn't want to know about it. And there's a reason for that. Long time ago, this is back when I was a policeman. And uh, there were some FBI guys that were working a case on something else. And we were talking about, I don't, I don't even think it was anything spooky or paranormal, but it was something unrelated. And, and the agent said, Dave, our government will never acknowledge what they can't control. And I always remembered that statement. You believe that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. They can't acknowledge it if they can't control it, or even if they think they can't control it. This got me thinking. Now, only recently I've been saying I don't like this term UAP. I don't. I feel like something odd is happening that the government is just coming forward and saying, well, look, we're encountering UFOs outside warships. This, it's all very strange. And I'm like, something has changed. And are they beginning to acknowledge it because of some reason they can now control it? Or they think that they can control it? Maybe after 70 years of research into UFOs, they finally got to a point where they understand the phenomenon. And as a result, now they're willing to talk about it. So may this give give some insight as to what's happening in these missing 411 cases. Can we finally understand why people just disappear in these locations? Well, if you listen to the witnesses that are surrounding all this UAP stuff, the answer would be no. I mean, they're still suggesting that it's completely out of their control. That's and especially right. if you hear the inside stories of, like, you know, the Admiral on the Navy ship with the Nimitz, for example, you know, he'd been familiar with the activity and the phenomena, but couldn't do anything about it. Right. So when you put this into the context of, of missing 411 reports, what's happening? I mean, has anyone come back that's able to describe what they've actually experienced. And it just so happens that, yes, there is. There's a rather well-known case uh, of Carl Higdon. And Carl Higdon had an abduction experience back in 1974. But before I talk about him and play some audio about his experience, I need to set the scene from a case from Arizona that happened in April of 2007. It related to a man by the name of Reinhard Kushner. He was a German physicist, right? Now, he had come over from Germany He would regularly, he'd been to this location before. He would go to Little Colorado River Gorge. And this guy was supposed to check in with his girlfriend at uh, McCann International Airport in Las Vegas. And he never showed up. He just just never showed up. And this is why his girlfriend uh, reported him missing, right? So, of course, they went and they searched in this particular gorge. They found his rented camper truck, but uh, there was nothing. He hadn't taken his puffer with him. He needed a puffer. He hadn't taken, it's like he'd fled quite quickly. Now, when searchers had gone into the surrounding area, they found his backpack and that was it. Like they just found this one piece of, of you know, personal effect and he was gone. He just disappeared. Now, look, this is the wilderness, right? And people can disappear. Strange things can happen. But in the context of other cases, it's important to note that there are these outlying pieces of information that come forward. And Politis says that he found out that uh, as the investigators and the searchers were looking for this guy, some ranchers that lived in the area came forward and said to the investigators, look, um, you know, we're, we're reluctant to talk about this, but the night that he disappeared or around the time that he disappeared, there'd been unusual lights in the sky. Mm. 
that's seen unusual phenomena. So you can see where this is now going into the UFO connection, right? And you can go, well, is it? You know, is it just people seeing weird lights? Are they mistaking things? Well, no, because if you look at the case of Carl Higdon, the hunter that had an experience back in uh, 1974, it was October the 25th, it's very strange. And it happened in the Medicine Bow National Forest. This place in Wyoming is a hotbed of activity, of strange activity. So with Carl uh, Higdon, he was elk hunting. Uh, as he was hunting, he saw five elk and got quite excited about it. But he said they didn't move. When he saw these elk, they were all frozen like statues. They weren't breathing. They weren't moving. It was this surreal frozen effect. Now, even though they were frozen, uh, obviously he, at this moment, he doesn't understand what's going on. So he levels his rifle and he fires. And he said the bullet came out of the gun, <laughs> but it hit an invisible force field. Yeah, it's a great case. It hit something that was invisible. Now, the bullet was later recovered by Higdon, by Carl, and it was uh, examined and it was found that it had struck something of immense hardness, of immense hardness. But what I love about this documentary and what I like about David's approach is that he sought out Carl Higdon. Carl Higdon is a very old man now, but he described what he had seen. And after he had fired this bullet, he looks over his shoulder and he sees some kind of weird glass craft. Well, it was like looking at a piece of glass. Only it had borders around it. And I couldn't figure out what it was to start with. So when you're looking at the, at the cube, can you see through it and see forest behind it? Yes. Was there anything in the cube? Not that I could see. So it was just like a, a glass square on four sides, seven foot by five foot, with nothing inside it, and you could kind of see through it. Right. What did you think when you first saw it? <laughs> I didn't know. I just kind of stared at it because it was unusual. And this guy showed up and asked me if I was hungry. Told him, yeah. So this package of four pills drifted over to me, just like it was thrown at me. I took one. Next thing I know, I was in this cubicle, but it looked a lot bigger. There's five elk behind me. I said, you got my elk. And just took at me and shrugged. Told me what his name was Ozo. And they were down to get food. I said, you guys always come down. I said, yeah. We come down every so often. We get elk, deer from here and go to the ocean and get fish and take it back. Take it back where? Well, that's the question, right? But I, it's great that you speak to these people directly that have had, you know, these legendary experiences. And as part of the documentary, um, David goes and speaks to his wife as well. But before we skip forward, I, it reminded me of something only can recently. I, can I just say something about that encounter? Yes, yeah, of course. Uh, I found a, a blog from a Japanese blogger on Tumblr. It's, I, I don't know how old this thing is, but... 
he's familiar with this abduction case of Carl Higdon and everything described. And first of all, I want to mention that cube, that clear see-through yes, cube. Piece That's of glass. exactly what the F-18 pilot described on Joe Rogan just a few oh, months yes. ago, that that's what the F-18 squadron was seeing when they're doing their practice mission runs for the Navy. I didn't even think they of that. They kept on seeing these clear, transparent cubes. Yep. That's what the U- the UAPs were. Uh, and that's what Higdon described. But this blogger uh, on this, tum- this Tumblr post from God knows 10 years ago, he was watching old episodes of Johnny Socko and his flying robot, which is a Japanese cartoon from the like mid to late 1960s. And he noticed that there was an episode of this Johnny Socko and his flying robot show that is the Carl Higdon case to a T. Really? Like there's this weird cubed flying saucer that lands, a man gets out and gives him pills and then the pills transport him inside. And what is bizarre is when you look at the the sketches that Carl Higdon gave to various researchers, they're the creatures, like the aliens, look Japanese. <laughs> like they can't, they look Asian. Yeah, they do have an Asian kind of look to them. <laughs> it's just a weird, it's a very weird coincidence. It's this strange synchronicity. It is a strange synchronicity because obviously, you know, a more skeptical point of view would be, well, the guy has somehow seen a Japanese anime from the 1960s. There's no taken, way this guy that's what I'm saying, of his no age way. and where he is. There's and no that, way. That time period is watching Japanese cartoons from the 1960s. Exactly. And and also, I mean, this guy was, you know, uh, taken in by authorities. He ended up in the hospital. The reason why he came back, it's implied, is because uh, he was taken to some off-world location. He said he saw like the 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 earth, like he saw a globe and he got taken somewhere else. Then he got taken behind a, a screen. And when he got taken behind the screen, it was like some, you know, rapid examination took place. And they were like, oh, uh, we can't use you. And he's like, oh, um, can I go home? Then like, yeah, sure. So they send him back and he basically finds himself f- tumbling down a um, the side of a hill, right? And the reason why it's implied that he t- was sent back is because uh, he'd had a vasectomy. Oh, of course. And he wasn't in, uh, you know, proper reproductive condition. They needed him, right? The other thing that came out, I want to play some audio for you actually um, first before we go into this because it reminded me, you know, the elements of this story, how he takes a pill and all of a sudden he finds himself in a cubicle somewhere. You know, there's all of his elk are inside there. Um, There's another report, you know, earlier on where you've got, you know, the guy on the beach describing seeing a light. Uh, it reminds me of Alan Godfrey. And Alan Godfrey was the guy back in the UK. He was the police officer that yeah. discovered the mutilated body of Zygmunt Adamski. And so let me just play for you his experience because it, it correlates almost perfectly. I find myself getting out of the car and uh, for some reason, I have no idea why, uh, a strange, very powerful beam of light is shone towards me, which blinds me. I jump back in the car in panic, and then there is some sort of a blackout. And after the blackout, I wake up in some sort of an examination room. Do you see the similarities? This light that's being used to somehow, it's almost like it's uh, confusing the prey. And then people passing out and then suddenly finding themselves in this other location. Yes, in the Higdon case, there was pills that were used, but it seems to follow this same kind of, of narrative that's going on. And again, it links back to the mutilations, these cattle mutilations that are taking place. The fact that, um, you know, Godfrey, Alan Godfrey was involved in the discovery of a human mutilation on top of that coal pile. It's a global phenomenon that's seemingly taking place. And I can see how Pilates, you know, he's really kind of pulled back 
the truth of what's occurring here. And it's truly horrifying. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. But going back to Higdon, I'm glad that you asked the question there, Ben, or you, you highlighted the depiction of the clothing. Because something that uh, was described by Marjorie, Marjorie Higdon is his wife. She said that when uh, he returned and was in the back of the police car, uh, or in the paramedic, I don't know what was occurring, but essentially he kept on yelling as he was being taken to hospital, they've got my elk. They've got my elk. <laughs> they did have like, his elk. They did have his elk. The guy, bastards. the guy was completely, you know, uh, out of it as a result of this. But um, he gives a description to his wife and these drawings of what these things are. So take a listen to uh, David talking to Marjorie and her describing what they look like. The entire suit was black. Completely black because our son burns them. So they have to wear black and they wear like uh, like a scuba diver's uh, suit. Covers them completely. Did Colonel ever say if he only had one hand and didn't draw the second? Or mm-hmm. did... Yes, he did not have another hand here, but he had a, like a cone over here. He had a cone. A cone. Like, it's just so <laughs> surreal. Yeah, it's in the, there's a Japanese sketch of this guy. Yeah. His cone hand. So this uh, this guy, Carl Higdon, was investigated by, well, his case was investigated by Dr. Leo Sprinkle, who happens to be from the University of Wyoming. I mean, he's an excellent researcher. He's a regression hypnotherapist. Uh, he also subjected Higdon to three or four lie detector tests, and Higdon passed every single time, at least to the point where he thought he was telling the truth. You know, he wasn't making up a story. This is what he was recalling. This is his experience. But there was physical evidence as well. And the physical evidence came about that Carl Higdon had suffered from tuberculosis. And tuberculosis, also commonly known as consumption, uh, causes permanent chest congestion and also causes scarring that can be seen on chest x-rays. All of that was gone after the abduction. All of the scarring was gone and the congestion was cleared. So they healed him. They healed him. It's, they must have healed him before they checked his balls. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, well, hang on a second. How is it that they could heal his body, but they couldn't reverse his vasectomy? Yeah, the like, alien's like, oh, damn. That's just going to take too long. How am I going to claim that? Yeah, it's not off in the budget for us to be able to do that. Maybe that's what was going on. And the guy was sent back. But maybe he got away luckily. You know, like he, who knows if the guy, you know, didn't just completely disappear and then was found, you know, weeks later. Uh, in a ditch somewhere, because in many of these cases, that's exactly what happens. But then in this same general area, so we skip forward in the documentary and David goes and speaks with Richard Beckworth, who was the Wyoming state director of MUFON. Uh, he talks about the regression. He actually went to a regression with Carl Higdon and was, consi- you know, he said, look, this guy is clearly truthful. Like he appeared to be truthful of what he was describing. Um, as I said before, the bullet indicated that it did actually hit something extremely hard. But there's another case. Another case, you know, uh, years later, decades later, in the same general area of Mark Strittmater. Now, Mark Strittmater was uh, 44 years old, and he went missing on the 19th of October in 2019 in Medicine Bow National Forest. He's approximately the same age as Higdon. It was the same time of year, just only 35 years later in the same location. And some of the details are put forward in this particular case where um, Kim Mees, who was his girlfriend, um, was describing what had happened. Apparently, what we do know from this is that he was texting her and he had been uh, found, I think it was like a five-pointer, a large five-pointer, he said, or and this is as in regards to the, the, um, the antlers, or maybe a small six-pointer. And he was excited about it. But as he tried to pursue it and hunt this thing, he couldn't. And it was indicated in the text message that it was inferred by Kim Mees that he was coming home, right? 
the weather changed. And this guy knows this area very well, but he seemingly parked his truck on Forestry Road 801. It was just before the connecting road, Forestry Road 830. He pulls over and no one knows why. Uh, He stops, he takes his light day pack, but leaves his backpack in the car uh, and he goes off. Now, no one knows what happened to this guy. Mark is a 15-year veteran of the area. And even if he was pursuing, it was almost like he went in a straight line, but that doesn't make any sense because elk don't move in a straight line. Like elk just kind of, if they get spooked, they wander around. And the fact that he was moving in a straight line kind of ties in with what you were implying before, Ben, that there was maybe something that he was being lured towards. There was Maybe he saw something. I don't know. But essentially, uh, Kim is trying to contact him. And she was concerned about this snowstorm coming through and she's texting and the, the, you know, the texts go unanswered. Uh, calls start going straight to voicemail. So she drives out there. She goes, she goes looking and she finds the car, but she finds nothing else. Now, of course, they bring in search parties and they can't find anything. There's no tracks. There's just no trace of him. Now, the thing is that this guy has a German surname. He's got a German ancestry. That seems to play a role in some of these cases. Uh-huh. The Germans, people with German ancestry, are the ones being taken. And this is why I call it the German triangles, because they're disappearing in threes and they've got German ancestry. It's like this odd element, this odd factor that comes in. Why? They're looking for the blonde lines. Well, well, what are they looking for? Is that what is going... Is it because they're looking for people from a certain area? I mean, this has long been discussed with uh, abduction laws that people are taken from family lines. People are selected because of their, you know, particular ancestry or the particular DNA. It's it's long been speculated that this is the case. Yeah, exactly. So you've got Bryce Martin, who was from the search and rescue team that was speaking to David about this. They spent seven days searching for this guy. They find nothing. They have to stop and then they go back for a second effort. Uh, they send in three dog teams. One of these, you know, points again, there's just no trace of any kind of scent that's there, which is very odd that the dogs wouldn't pick up anything. It's, it's unusual. They send drones into the canyon. They've got civil air going for two days. But he said what was odd is that there was never any birds. Now, birds are an indicator of a body, and yet there was nothing. The other factor is, even if this guy was lost, is that if you just walked downhill, you'd eventually come to a road. You might have to cross through private property, but if you're in danger, you wouldn't care. Like, you'd just do what you yeah. can to get... Nothing, right? So, in regards to, you know, everything that's going on with this, of course, David says to her, well, you know, is there anything, you know, unusual about this? Is there something that, you know, that Mark has experienced or you, because Kim would go out with him as well. Is there anything that you've experienced? And it's really funny. And I kind of had to edit it down a bit because you'll hear in this, this audio, or he asks this question of anything unusual. And she's like, oh, in what sense? It's almost like she's kind of stunned by it for a second because she knows it. But I think it's like, there's a reluctance to talk about it, but it fits in perfectly with the other experiences that I've been talking about. Take a listen. In your time with Mark out there, did you guys ever experience anything weird? As far as? Anything weird. He was out hunting deer during rifle, and he swore he saw a UFO out there. He was coming out from hunting, and he just happened to look up and um, saw it, like he said it was just like hovering, following him, and it freaked him out. And he tried to look at it through his binoculars, but it was getting dark. And it, so he, it scared him. What did it look like to him? He said it was just like a black 
hover, it was just black, it was just hovering. And it scared him. Yeah, because it was like it was following him out. Yeah, it is odd when he asks, did anything weird happen? And she doesn't immediately think of the UFO. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, as in, oh, yeah, the guy was followed by a UFO. He was tagged by a UFO in a prior circumstance, a prior occasion. And the guy just disappears and you're just like, you're talking to a UFO researcher. And you're like, oh, (laughs) oh, I should probably mention that. So you think that's what happened, that he got tagged, that he... Yeah, that's that's what's implied also in the document. I mean, reading between the lines is, and in regards to that earlier case I described as well, where the guy disappears and previously he and his wife had seen a ufo he got tagged he got tagged now this is where we start to come into the german triangle right because there's another case in this same area and this relates to charles gustafson now charles gustafson uh was also another carbon county elk hunter uh but he was a little bit older he's in his 70s he just disappeared he just disappeared at this location he was never found uh and it only was 20 uh 20 miles east of where the previous disappearance had taken place. Now, this happened in 2006, and the guy was carrying a GPS you know, beacon with him. He still didn't activate it. What happened to this guy? So in this particular area, and Ben, I've drawn here for you a little diagram, and I'll put a, a photograph of this or a screenshot of this in the show notes, but just have a look in that top left-hand corner there in that diagram I've got for you, Ben. So you've got Higdon in 1974, Higdon, yeah. you've got Strittmater in 2019, and you've got Gustafsson in 2006. What formation is their disappearance? Swastika. <laughs> Boom. It's all revealing itself. <laughs> no, it's obviously a triangle. It's a triangle, right? Now, it this triangle happens to be next to a very important location. And this location forms the hypothesis of what Politis put forward, puts forward in this incredible documentary. Now, one thing that's said at the very end there by, by David Politis when he's talking to uh, Kim Mees, he asks her, he's like, look, it's a weird question, but did he have a vasectomy? And she's like, no, he didn't have a vasectomy. Now, previously, Higdon, who had a vasectomy, returned. I know it's a singular case, but the implication oh, is, is no. that he got taken. He was prime He's material. the right bloodline. His reproductive system is intact. He, he was taken. But what sits just to the east of this particular triangle? Well, you're going to find out now. Plus extension coming up right <laughs> after the break. Nicely done. What's the documentary called again? It's called Missing 411, The UFO Connection. I'll link to it in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. You can pick it up on all major platforms at the moment. I strongly recommend that you get this documentary and watch it because I cannot do it justice. I, I like the direction that David Politis has gone in. Also, it's like... It's so sad. I should have said it earlier, but a lot of people in the field know this. But sadly, um, Ben Politis, his son, who has been on this show, yeah. you know, passed away. Um, you know, I think it was a year or two ago. So the fa- and which is horrible. Like I couldn't even begin to imagine how terrible it would be to lose a son or to lose a child. And yet, David seems to have pulled himself together, and he's gone out. He's done this documentary. He's put his boots on the ground and powered through. So it's just a really, really wonderful thing to see. And his documentary is just great. It gives such intriguing insight to what possibly could be an answer to the missing 411 phenomenon. I can't wait to hear after the break because you were telling me earlier that, you know, and you mentioned this at the start of the show, that he never really gave a hypothesis with his books as to what was behind it. But you were saying to me earlier, before we started recording, that that seems to have changed. Yes. 
he seems to be looking in a particular direction now. I guess you would have to. I mean, he's published so many of these books. I mean, we've se- spoken to him on the show, obviously. We've seen presentations in Sydney. Uh, you know, he's always discussed some really interesting elements of the case, but he's never really kind of made a, like a really detailed kind of hypothesis. In this, he does. And it's an astounding hypothesis, and it's not what you'd expect, but it definitely relates to isosceles triangle. (laughs) Coming up in Plus, you'll get more answers. And we're going to look at the new work from Jack Hunter, this amazing compilation of Deep Weird, the varieties of high strangeness experience, and the fringe of the fringe. These are the stories, these are the encounters, the experiences that have just exceeded the fringe researchers' boggle thresholds. And they've been discarded from papers, from research journals, from, you know, the, the fringe research that's been done in parapsychology. Some very strange stuff coming up from that in our Plus extension. If you want to get access, head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Sign up today. Uh, when you sign up, you get access to the big extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. And Plus members get an exclusive season that comes out every Tuesday as well. You're getting more than double the content when you sign up for Plus. If you sign up for MU Max, you also get access to our entire back catalogue as well 15 plus years of shows sitting in there ready to be listened to huge back catalogue uh, available on MU Max and also uh, all plus members and MU Max members get access to a, a higher quality version of the show in terms of the audio and you also get a totally ad free version of the show as well along with unlocked articles on our website as well check it out mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus that's a wrap for this free edition of MU thanks for listening if you're on plus stick around for the great stuff after the break for everyone else we'll catch you next week Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you with us. There are going to be some pissed off barnacles. After-